back to Afternoons Live with Tyler Axness. I'm Dane DeCray filling in for Tyler. And if the uh, studio coming in in between segments is any indication, I might be replacing Tyler Axness. The show is going so well. Now is the time that we've all been waiting for. My hundreds of fans across the North Dakota region wanting to call and text in to ask me and my law partner, Bruce Ringstrom Jr., questions about the criminal law. Before we do that, Bruce deserves the introduction that I've always wanted to be able to give, but we haven't had an opportunity. He, along with I, founded Ringstrom & DeCray, a boutique criminal defense law firm, two years ago. We've been practicing together for two years. Before that, for nine years, he was the sole proprietor of Ringstrom Law, although he did work with his father, Bruce Ringstrom Sr., another lion of the criminal bar, and before that, four years as a public defender in Minnesota. One of the finest trial lawyers that I've ever seen and a person that I hope to be practicing law with for the next, I say 20. I know the Ringstrom a little better than that. They'll probably say 40, but practicing law together for some time. Bruce, thanks for coming on the show. Dane, it's a pleasure to be here. Well... So what we're going to do, folks, while we wait for all these calls and texts to come in is Bruce and I are going to talk a little bit about some of the things of the criminal law that we've always wanted to talk about if we had a microphone. I joke with Bruce all the time. Let's run commercials. Let's run ads and try to give people an understanding of what is going on in the criminal law when you're arrested or charged with a crime going to trial, facing charges. TV shows don't really do justice what the real criminal justice system is about. And so I'm going to kick it off to you, Bruce. With this platform, what is one thing you think all of Fargo-Moorhead residents need to know when it comes to the criminal law? Well, in my mind, and this is something that has to be said over and over again, every year, every decade, every generation, which is we have a system of criminal justice that empowers a group of individuals, law enforcement officers, to investigate crimes and to arrest people and do other things. And in their capacity as public safety officers, if I call 911 because someone is breaking in, I want to talk to that person and provide them actionable information to keep me and my family safe. But if I am speaking to law enforcement in virtually any other capacity, law enforcement is acting as an investigator. They are acting to gather information to hopefully, in their minds, convict some of a crime. And so what I often tell my clients is anything you say to a police officer that is good for you stays out of court. Anything you say to a police officer that is bad for you goes into court. So the lesson is, remain silent. And isn't it interesting that since the 1960s, law enforcement has had to say when they arrest people, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And yet, when lawyers and judges are arrested, they speak to law enforcement. There is something counterintuitive about remaining silent. But that is the one thing I would say remain silent. You will have an opportunity to tell your side if there's a reason to 
when the time is right. It is not when you are detained by a member of law enforcement. And you were talking about one of the things that everybody who's ever watched Law & Order knows, and those are the Miranda rights. But you're right. Um, Even though the police tell you right to your face, you don't have to talk to us. And if you do talk to us, we're probably going to use it against you. In our experience, I would say 8 out of 10 of our clients who come in when they're deciding whether or not to retain us as their lawyers, and we ask them, well, did you talk to the police? Or did the police try to talk to you? Yes, they did. And yes, I did. And it, it's, a human, it's a human nature emotion, or it's just a reflex. But I agree with you completely. Uh, there's the short TikToks and videos out there that say it a little more crudely than we are right now. But my top line advice is that you should always remain silent when police are trying to talk to you. And you, you, you can be polite about it. As, as Dane was saying, you know, these YouTube and TikTok videos often uh, create a sort of an antagonistic environment. You don't have to do that. If you get pulled over, um, state laws are a little bit different, but typically you have to provide your driver's license, your insurance card, uh, maybe a couple of other things. But you, you don't actually have to tell law enforcement where you're going, where you came from, where you, whether you had anything to drink. Now, I when I get pulled over, um, if I'm being falsely accused of speeding, for example, uh, police will you know, start asking me questions, and I politely look at them. And, and they often get stymied because it is so rare to encounter someone who chooses to remain silent. So it requires discipline. That's the top line. Do not talk to law enforcement unless, an, unless it is an ongoing emergency. Or if you have a lawyer present and they advise you to do so. But if they do... I may recommend a different lawyer for you. I would. I've had <laughs> somewhere between five and 10,000 clients, and there's been about three times where I thought it made sense uh, without some kind of specific favorable agreement to speak to law enforcement. The exceptions are so rare that uh, you should just keep your mouth shut. Sure. Well, we have broke the seal, everybody. Our first text message in on the topic. I am hoping for many, many more. First question I'm going to throw to Bruce. He is a self-proclaimed gun guy. And so the question is, how hard is it for a non-violent, non-drug felony conviction to get gun rights back for hunting? The conviction is 15 years old. I was 18 when it occurred. It was in North Dakota. And I've had nothing since. Bruce? Can this man get his gun rights back to hunt the pheasants that are waiting for him out in the fields? The answer is possibly. Um, This individual had, before the felony conviction, two sets of gun rights, North Dakota gun rights and federal Second Amendment gun rights. And depending on the nature of the conviction, depending on how the interaction between uh, that conviction and the federal law uh, works out, They may be able to get their state rights back, but not their federal rights back. And there is a possibility, and do not take this as legal advice, because I don't know who you are, and I haven't looked at the register of conviction. It is possible in this situation that someone may be able to possess a hunting-type firearm that is on loan from a family member, but not purchase any kind of firearm. 
It is possible that gun rights could be restored in their entirety, and this person could buy, possess, transfer any kind of firearms that anybody would might be able be able to uh, to possess or otherwise transfer. But you do need to consult with an expert. And I think that's important. I should have said that from the top. I'm learning. It's my first time. You should always consult with your own attorney. This is not technical legal advice. We're doing our best to answer. But I think Bruce's top line answer is there is a possibility to get that back. We will be back with more questions after this. Afternoons Live, Dane DeCray filling in for Tyler Axness. The only two things in life that make it worth living is guitars are too good and firm, feeling well. Welcome back to Afternoons Live with Tyler Axness. I'm Dane DeCray filling in for Tyler alongside with my law partner, the founding partner of Ringstrom DeCray. That's why he gets the first name. I'm relegated to the second name. We are a criminal defense boutique in Moorhead. We serve Moorhead, Fargo, North Dakota. Minnesota, state and federal, if you're in trouble, please consider calling us. It is now time to ask and answer the question that is compiling all of our texts and is something that I anticipated would happen, and I'm glad it is because this is one of the areas I've learned the most from Bruce about, and that is how does Bruce's hair look so good all the time? (laughs) You're correct. This is the second most asked question I have, other than Bruce's hair. The question is related to drinking and driving. There are different acronyms for it. There are different charges depending on what side of the river this happens. But the fundamental question that I think is a great jumping off point, it says, if you have been drinking and you make the decision to drive, which from the top, I would never, ever, ever make that recommendation. But if you do and you get pulled over, what should you do? Good hair, Bruce Ringstrom Jr. Answer this man's or woman's question. Well, one thing that I advise anyone to do if they elect to go drink somewhere and then drive somewhere else is to keep a portable breath test in their trunk. Now, don't keep it in your back seat because if you reach into your back seat and grab your portable breath test, you then potentially could be charged with driving under the influence under what's called the actual physical control uh, component of the statute. So you either need to have it in your trunk or you need to have it in a lockbox in the back of your pickup. And again, this is not legal advice, but if I were you, if I blew more than a .04, I wouldn't get behind the, behind the wheel. .08 is the per se level in both Minnesota and North Dakota, .0. Uh, four is the level if you are a concealed carry operator, and point zero two, I believe, um, is is the level if you're an airline pilot. So that would be rule number one. If you get pulled over, just like we talked about, you don't have to speak to law enforcement. I mean, if if you get pulled over, you pro- provide your license and your insurance card, your registration. They ask you where are you going, where are you coming from. All of that dialogue provides the police officer with an opportunity to look at your eyes, to check for bloodshot, watery eyes, slurred speech, fumbling with cards, all of these kinds of things, and to to smell your breath. So if you get pulled over, the best move to make from the beginning is to not engage the police officer. Now, even if you do that, they may order you to get out of the vehicle. 
maybe that order is an unlawful order. That is to say, they don't have reasonable suspicion. They don't have a legal justification. You don't get to resist that. We get to litigate that later. But if you get out, you still can not communicate with police. That would be, essentially, if you can remember just those things, you are putting yourself in a far better position than anyone, really, who gets pulled over and starts saying, well, I only had two beers, or whatever the case may be. And that brings me to a point that I talk about with a lot of people and I think is important to understand, and it dovetails with our recommendations related to silence. And that is the moment a police officer believes that you may have been drinking when they pull you over. These questions, you're not, you're not talking your way out of this, almost certainly. No. Um, they are, these are formalities and or investigative tools. I think some people think, well, if I just answer honestly and, you know, I do the North Dakota nice thing and I tell this fine officer what he wants to hear, he's going to let me go or, or whatever it is. Their job is to enforce the law, and if they believe it's been violated, they are really not taking no for an answer. And the second part of that, and Bruce touched on it, is you can't, you can try actively resist these things because you think, oh, they don't have reasonable suspicion or they shouldn't be doing this. But really what you have to do is you have to go through the motions with the officers and then be charged with something if, if you do end up getting charged with a crime and then have your lawyers fight it. Uh, no matter how hard it is, it, you're never going to be able to be the vigilante lawman who says, I refuse this order. You cannot do this. You know, don't be a constitutional lawyer on the side of the road. Simply stay silent. And if you do get charged, consider hiring Ringstrom Decray, the premier criminal law boutique in the Fargo area. I don't believe any of that. <laughs> Um, there is one example uh, that, that you, you might want to keep in mind. Imagine that you're driving home from the bar and you get home, you pull into your uh, garage, shut the garage door, you get inside, and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and it's a police officer and they want to talk to you. Why on earth would you open that door? If they have an arrest warrant, well, you have to open that door. If they have a search warrant, well, you have to open that door. But if they just want to talk to you, if I were in your shoes, I would simply go to bed. I would put in my earplugs and go to sleep because they cannot make you open the door. But if you do, you will need the services of a, an accomplished criminal defense attorney. So there you go. And what Bruce is touching on is something we talk about a lot too, which is consent to police orders. There are rules that determine what you can and don't have to say or do with police officers. When they ask to come in your house, you don't have to let them. They might not tell you that because they want you to consent to it. Because when you do, lots of your rights go out the window and do not count. And so what my recommendation, dovetailing off of Bruce's example, is make the police do their job and do not do it for them. We will be back. Afternoons Live, Dane DeCray filling in. For Tyler Axness. Welcome back to Afternoons Live with Tyler Axness. I'm Dane DeCray filling in for Tyler, and the show is rolling on. I'm still here with my law partner, Bruce Ringstrom Jr., 
He and I are lawyers at Ringstrom Decray. All we do is criminal defense. And all we want to do today is to try to pull back the veil a little bit about the criminal law and try to answer some questions that you guys have. As we look through these texts that are coming in, it is very clear to us that we could do an entire segment just on drinking and driving. And so I don't want to get too bogged down in that. We have one more text I'm going to read, but I do want to focus on some other things because I think it's important to answer other questions. But I will say one of the textures makes a great point, Bruce. And they say, quote, this segment on legal information is great. I would love to hear this as a regular segment. So Tyler, I know you're listening and Bruce is nodding his head. Please consider this our formal application for a monthly criminal law topic. That is a brilliant texture. <laughs> Thank you, my wife, Leah. I appreciate you texting in. All right, Bruce, the last question before I'm going to change gears. If a cop asks you for your identification card anywhere, do you have to show it to them? Or do you have to first be suspected of a crime before you show it to them? Well, there is a U.S. Supreme Court case, uh, Terry versus Ohio, that governs this, and I can let you opine on that. There are some bases under which an uh, officer can stop someone. North Dakota specifically, this is governed by a statute in the Century Code where officers may stop someone in a public space if the officer reasonably suspects somebody's committed or has committed a felony a misdemeanor related to the possession of a concealed or dangerous weapon or weapons, burglary or unlawful entry, or a violation of any provision related to controlled substances. And they can demand the name, address, and explanation. Now, I actually had a, a case dismissed because my client was accused of some kind of improper behavior in the mall. And as he was walking away, law enforcement just grabbed him and started interrogating him. Um, it was a violation of the statute. Really, the question I think that you're asking is, what should I do? Well, look, do you want to die on that hill? If I get stopped by a police officer, I may say, am I free to leave? And they say, if they say no, I say, well, okay. I hereby invoke my rights under the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. I choose to remain silent and wish to speak to my attorney. But I'm probably still going to give them my driver's license. I'm not going to tell them where I came from or where I'm going. So the answer is probably no. Could you be charged with obstruction of legal process or something like that? Possibly, but I think that charge is likely to be dismissed. This is not legal advice, but more likely than not, that's what's going to happen. The question in that circumstance is if you're doing nothing wrong by your own lights and a cop stops you, um, the more you resist it, the more time that you are going to waste of your own. But there is a statute that governs it, and unless they believe you committed a felony or a, some kind of a violent misdemeanor or a drug offense, they shouldn't be talking to you at all. And I'm going to circle back real quickly on that, which is the idea that if you think the police are asking you to do something that you either think is illegal, don't agree with, you can still do it. And if you're charged with a crime, someone, Ringstrom Decray, can litigate that case for you to try to remedy your rights. Usually you get yourself in more trouble if you try to be the vigilante and take it into your own hands. So you can let the police officers do the thing you disagree with and then try to vindicate your rights later on. And that is where a good criminal defense lawyer comes in. And that is what we call a segue into the final question I have for you today, Bruce. And this is my question. And I think it's important because of the work we do. 
people always ask me, how do people choose your law firm? How do they get in contact with you? How do they know to hire you? And it's changing. I think it used to be you call any lawyer in your family that you know who does anything and you ask them and then they go to their network and they say, oh, yeah, I, I heard that Bruce Ringstrom Sr. over in Moorhead's a, a pretty good trial lawyer. With the Internet, that's changed. There's lawyers out there who are all, law, all Internet, no law. There's all these things going on. You've been a lawyer longer than me. What do you think a person should consider when they're charged with a crime and they're trying to decide which lawyer they should hire? Well, it depends on the field of law. If you are looking expressly at a federal case, uh, particularly a federal drug case, uh, Dane, you can opine on this. Very often the government has evidence so vast and overwhelming that it, um, it's somewhat incredible to believe that you could actually win at trial. But in a lot of state cases... What you want to look for is a lawyer who actually knows how to try and win the winnable cases. Not all criminal cases are winnable by the defense, but a good criminal defense attorney will put everything he or she can into it and will win the winnable cases. And that's important because obviously if your case goes to trial, you want to win it. But the fact that your lawyer knows how to win the winnable cases means that the prosecutor takes them seriously and is more likely to give a favorable result if it's not going to go to trial. So I think that's the most important thing to look for. And I'll tell you, um, that was the thing I looked for when I was thinking about who I might want to start a law firm with. And maybe that's a shameless plug, but trials are a dying thing in the criminal law. These numbers are always a little different, and everyone's got a source, but I would say... Eight out of ten cases never go to trial. That's why you want a lawyer who's trying those two out of ten cases. And in my research in this area, there were a few lawyers who stood out as the people who were trying cases. One of those is you. Tell me how you became a trial lawyer in what I consider to be a dying age of trial lawyers. Well, you know, as you noted, my dad, Bruce Ringstrom Sr., uh, has been a criminal defense attorney for almost 44 years, and so I grew up around it. He also worked as a public defender, which is uh, public defenders are the backbone of uh, the defense side of the criminal justice system. And so I saw someone do really hard work and enjoy it. I went to law school actually thinking I would be a civil litigator, but I realized that those people almost never go to trial. So I quickly switched to criminal law. And I worked for many years as a public defender, and I tried dozens of cases. I was able to help a lot of people uh, get free. Uh, I did not win all of them. Some cases are not winnable. But I realized that that is the thing that animates my desire to do good work. And it's the thing that animates the desire of a lot of criminal defense attorneys to do good work, and, and prosecutors too. Prosecutors are lawyers too, so I've heard. Um, <laughs> There is something about a trial that is, is terrifying. Um, it keeps you up at night, but it also is the animating force behind what we do. And I, I, I wouldn't be able to feel the way I do about this work if the specter of trial weren't on the horizon in each and every case. And the other thing you talked about, which I think is important for people to understand when they're facing this decision, is what a lawyer who tries cases, 
what that signals to the prosecutor. And I went to lunch earlier this week with another lawyer who I respect greatly, Mark Fries, and he paid me a nice compliment. He said I was an ankle biter, which means prosecutors know when Dane, and now it's Dane and Bruce, are involved in a case, he's never going to stop biting your ankles. That doesn't mean I win. That doesn't mean I, I knock over the animal or whatever, how you want to string out that, that metaphor. But talk a little bit about, and you, you touched on it earlier, but expand on that. Why is it important for a prosecutor to believe that you're actually going to go to trial against them? And why does that help a client in their case? Well, I mean, it, it requires sort of looking a little bit at how the sausage gets made here. If you're a prosecutor, a good prosecutor, an honorable prosecutor concerned about convicting the guilty and letting the innocent go free. You also are concerned with um, the alleged victims in your case. And if opposing counsel knows how to try a case, that means the amount of work that you as the prosecutor has to have to do uh, goes up, I don't know, by fivefold, tenfold, maybe more. You then have to have very difficult conversations with your alleged victims and your other witnesses. You have to put the rest of your practice on hold and that tends to drive more favorable resolutions. I want to briefly answer a question that I think relates to this. People will ask me, who is the best criminal defense lawyer of all time? And, and I've got a short list, but the name I usually default to is Jerry Spence. Jerry Spence is still alive. Um, he won the Ruby Ridge case. He won the um, Karen Silkwood case. Um, he won the Jeffrey Figer case in 2008. When he was almost 80 years old, I went to his trial lawyer's college, and Dane actually clerked for Mr. Spence. And Mr. Spence taught us that if you want to be a trial lawyer, you have to learn to love your clients. You have to learn to love them to their core. It doesn't matter what they're accused of. It doesn't matter how bad the facts are. You have to know them so well that you can tell their story to a jury. And when you believe it in your bones, the jury will believe you. And that is when true justice happens. I'm so glad you went there. I didn't, I didn't anticipate that at the beginning of what you were saying. But I will say that that is true. And I tell people the same thing when they ask, how can you defend those people? How can you defend someone when you know they're guilty, you think they're guilty? And my answer is very similar to what Bruce just said. I've had five, 600 cases and clients. I can count on one hand how many times I felt, woof, this guy or girl is not a good person, and they kind of give me the ick. Every other person is just like everybody else, just like one of us. You can love them like a brother or a sister. They've either made a bad choice, something has happened where the police overstepped bounds. There's always so much more to it than just those people, and we other them like that until we ourselves or someone we know finds themselves in trouble. And then all of a sudden, they want the best darn criminal defense lawyer who wants to turn over every rock and work hard because, you know, they just made a mistake. My response is, almost always, we all just made a mistake. And I made mistakes growing up. My family's listening. They're probably smiling right now. And if it weren't for people helping me and giving me grace, I wouldn't be here. That's what animates my practice. And, and, and it should. What's, what's interesting, I, I have represented, I don't know, a 
few thousand uh, uh, people. And I have gone to trial on clients that I had every, every belief that they were factually innocent. What I've known, what I've noticed is every single innocent client I've ever represented was often doing something that they probably shouldn't have been doing. Not that they were guilty of the crime, but they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were, um, you know, I don't know, whether it was taking drugs or consuming alcohol or just making bad associations. And so they look guilty from a certain perspective. That is why reasonable doubt matters. That is why the presumption of innocence matters. I'm going to come back, finish up with Bruce, and turn it over to our next folks, Dan DeCray Afternoons Live with Tyler Axels. Welcome back to Afternoons Live with Tyler Axness. I'm Dane DeCray filling in for Tyler. Our time is almost over, folks. I have had a wonderful time. I'm going to finish up here with my law partner, Bruce Ringstrom. He and I run Ringstrom DeCray, criminal defense boutique in Minnesota and North Dakota. Bruce, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, We've been talking about loving our clients people finding lawyers. Is there anything else that you want to let people know until Tyler finally makes the decision to bring us on every month so we don't have to fill it in as much this time? But for now, I'll give you the parting shot. You got 30 seconds to a minute. When you're driving your vehicle, have good tags on your vehicle. Drive the speed limit. Don't have fuzzy dice hanging from your rearview mirror or your college parking permit. Don't have unnecessary tint on your vehicle. Don't give law enforcement a reason to pull you over. Um, It sounds like something that Mike Ehrmantraut might have said on Breaking Bad, but only break one law at a time. You're less likely to get caught. Always sage advice from my partner and, honestly, my legal mentor here in Fargo. Bruce, thanks for coming on for my inaugural show. I really appreciate it. It was your pleasure. The one thing I do want to address before I wrap up and give my thank yous, a caller called in. I think her name was Michelle. Michelle, I'm sorry we didn't take your call. It was about Cassie Black Elk, and I'm so passionate about it, I knew it would railroad us and move us off our topic. Your question was about her original public defender and whether or not he was going to face some sort of discipline for what he did. The short answer is I don't know. Um, I said this last time about Julie Lawyer, the Burley County prosecutor. Someone could file an ethics complaint against him. Cassie could file that against him, this being now the public defender, and he would have to defend himself against an ethics charge from the state of North Dakota board. Um, I don't want to wade into that as a fellow criminal defense lawyer, but I do think it does give public defenders a bad name. Bruce and I were both public defenders before we went private, it really get grinds my gears when I hear people hear them say, oh, I had a public pretender or my public defender didn't do anything for me. And unfortunately, every Cassie Black Elk story, there are 99 others, people like Michael Minard, uh, Michael Minard in Moorhead, who does amazing work that never gets in the news. But it's this one bad one that does. So sometimes you can't afford a lawyer. You need a public defender. I'm here to tell you. I love the law. Bruce loves the law. We were public defenders. They are on the front lines doing some of the best work. Do not sleep on public defenders. I am looking at my time. 
looks like I have one more minute. I want to say thank you to Eric. He's the in-studio producer. I may sound polished for my first time, but I will tell you without Eric, you would be sick of listening to me. I have had a wonderful time today. I hope that we can do this again, either as a guest host or as a law show once a month. We would love to come in and talk more. Bruce and I scratched the surface when I go to parties, when I meet new people and they find out my job, all they want to do is ask me questions about the criminal law, their cases, shows they've seen, and very quickly I take over the conversation. That's why I'm on the radio. That's why I hope to come back. This is Dane DeCray signing out, Afternoons Live. Tyler, I'm coming for you. You better get your game tight next week, buddy boy, because I felt pretty good doing this. Thank you so much. Afternoons Live, Dane DeCray filling in. Tyler Axis. I should have been a cow.